This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode five, Trump's Chinese chess match, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Kierens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Dan Creeder, Ben Reitzes, and Dan Belton from our FIC Macro Strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics and Stephen Gallo, who heads BMO's European Foreign Exchange Strategy, for a roundtable discussion on the troubling U.S.-China trade war. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. As the trade war escalates, we analyze the potential impact on U.S. and Canadian growth, interest rates, spreads, foreign exchange, and monetary policy. While not our base case, we also examined the potential implications of China embarking on a large-scale U.S. asset sell program. Let's begin with Michael Gregory from our economics team. Michael, just last month, the equity market was hitting new records on growing prospects for a U.S.-China trade deal. Now it looks like all bets are off on a timely resolution to the trade tensions. How did it all fall apart? Well, basically, uh, the Chinese government got cold feet. There was a deal that, or a tentative deal that was worked out, 150 pages long. In that, China had agreed to make some changes to its practices with respect to technology transfer, we'll call it to be nice, and other things like that. And uh, it went to Beijing, and when it came back, it came back 45 pages lighter in English than when it went over there. In other words, the Chinese government pulled a lot of the parts concerning the commitments they had made. And uh, basically, they didn't want to do it at this stage or feel forced that they had to do it. And uh, needless to say, the administration quickly responded by uh, increasing the tariffs from 10% to 25%. China retaliated, sanctions against Huawei. And before you know it, we have an escalated trade war. What are the prospects for a trade deal actually getting done? Actually, I think the prospects are, are, are pretty dim right now. I mean, the, the mood has clearly soured. There's a, there's a lack of trust there. And, and quite frankly, we were quite skeptical of a deal actually getting done in an expeditious fashion for the simple reason. It took 14 months to get NAFTA renegotiated. And this is uh, three economic partners, three amigos. They had an existing deal on the table, NAFTA. Most of what was new in the USMCA had already been agreed to by the United States, Mexico, and Canada in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There was a few new things in there, wrinkles, but the bottom line, it took 14 months to do that. Now, turn to China, where uh, there's no deal on the table. The United States and China are economic adversaries, if not political and military adversaries. And the United States has regularly accused China of cheating. So it was going to take longer than just uh, you know, 14 months to get this thing done. It could take years. Michael, how is this impacting the U.S. economy? Well, tariffs are inherently stagflationary. They, they increase uh, inflation prices and are negative for growth. And if you look at the, sort of the tariffs that have put on uh, China and the retaliatory measures China has put on the U.S., it's probably about a three-tenths hit 
uh, to GDP. You add in the rest of the tariffs that have been used actively since the beginning of 2018, and told you're probably about uh, a 0.4 hit to growth. Now, that doesn't seem a lot, but keep in mind that the run rate for the U.S. economy right now is two or slightly below two. So four tenths does uh, have a big impact. Now, there was a little bit of a reprieve in terms of a lifting of the steel and aluminum tariffs uh, from Canada and Mexico. But quite frankly, that kind of gets uh, lost in the rounding. So we still see about a four tenths hit right now to cumulative GDP growth because of the tariffs. Michael, do you think it can get any worse? It can get worse. The president has threatened to apply tariffs on the remaining amount of Chinese imports, depending on how you calculate them, anywhere from 250 to $170 billion. China will retaliate, but they're running out of retaliation room because they don't import as much as the U.S. does. So that may go to other forms of non-tariff barriers, make life difficult for U.S. companies operating uh, in, in China. Selling treasuries, for example, is something that has been you know, mentioned. So the bottom line, this could get worse if you figure that if they put the tariffs on uh, the remaining imports from China, that's probably at least another, another three-tenths hit to growth. And, and let's face it, there's also the risk that we get tariffs on imported automobiles and parts. Uh, it, come November, it's been postponed uh, until then, but uh, you add that all up together and, and we could be facing a sort of a full percentage point hit to GDP growth cumulatively. And, and uh, you know, that's about half of what the, the economy would be growing at anyway. So the bottom line is that it could get worse and it could be materially different for the U.S. economy, much weaker. And of course, that plays right into uh, what the Fed could potentially do. So the potential weakness for the U.S. economy could possibly bleed into our outlook for interest rates and spreads and foreign exchange. So I'd like to turn now to the potential impact of the trade wars on the various markets that we cover. Let's begin with U.S. rates. Ian, how do you see the continuing escalations in the trade war playing out in the U.S. rates market? Well, we've already seen a fair amount of the transfer between the uncertainty created by the trade war and what it means to the Treasury market. And to Michael's point, it has been bad for the economic outlook. It has been bad for risk assets. And as we know, an increase in equity market volatility tightens financial conditions, and that makes the Fed's job that much harder. At this point, the market is actively pricing in an insurance rate cut from the Fed. Whether that actually comes to fruition or not is an entirely different story. But for now, the worse the trade war becomes, the better that ends up being for the Treasury market. Do you think that a further rise in tensions would be sufficient for the Fed to actually cut? I only think that it will lead the Fed to cut if we have a repeat of what we saw in the fourth quarter, and that is equity market vol spike as stock prices fall, and that leads through to tighter financial conditions. And in an environment where inflation is still underperforming, even if we do have some imported stagflation because of the tariffs, we would still expect the Fed to view that aspect as transitory, and it could, in and of itself, prompt the Fed to move. Again, to the earlier point, though, it's going to be a function of just how bad things ultimately become. How troubled do you think the FOMC is by the impact of the tariffs? I think they're far less troubled about the impact of the tariffs than they are on the implication for business investment, for consumer confidence, and for the troubles globally 
continuing to make their way into the U.S. economy and the potential for that to curtail domestic consumption, because that's really the big unknown. The Fed has made a big wager that some of the downward pressure on inflation that we've seen is transitory and that the slowdown that we've seen in the consumer is temporary. And we will find out over the next couple quarters whether or not that wager pays off. If there is a continued rise in the trade tensions, where do you see 10-year yields going? At this point, I'm assuming a reasonable amount of that is actually already priced in. We have 10-year yields currently below 225. And in an environment where effective Fed funds is 238, we've already priced in a reasonable amount of downside risk. That doesn't mean that we won't see a one-handle on the 10-year by the end of the summer because it's a period of uncertainty and we also tend to have bullish seasonals in the treasury market playing out at a point when, frankly, it's hard to imagine that we're going to see a June rate cut. And if we don't see a June rate cut, equity markets are not going to be happy with that. And that, again, puts more downward pressure on stocks, which have become a key driver of monetary policy expectations at this point in the cycle. So in the unlikely event of a speedy resolution, do you see 10 years, 10 year yields backing up to 250, 275? I think 250 is very doable. 275 is going to be a challenge unless the trade war resolution is accompanied by an increase in realized inflation and an improvement on the domestic growth outlook. Thanks, Ian. Turning over spread markets, Dan Belton, what sectors are most exposed to the trade war and how are these sectors currently performing? We're looking at the sectors where the U.S. exports most goods to China. So that includes things like capital goods, so machinery, aircrafts, and then autos, agriculture, and things like that. We're most concerned with the impact of declining corporate profits on these sectors. Although we should point out that given some of the recent analysis we've done on corporate earnings, uh, we don't think this is going to be much of an issue in the near term. We think that if this trade war drags on for several more quarters, then that's something that could widen spreads in these sectors. But overall, we think that this is a longer term story. More pointedly today, we're looking at the broad risk off market tone that Ian just mentioned. And this is obviously going to be a spread negative situation with the greatest underperformance coming from the products furthest out the credit spectrum. So you have high, high yield spreads out about 50 basis points from recent lows and the highest quality spread sectors that we cover, SSAs, are pretty well contained. Now, investment grade spreads have widened, but given the macro landscape, they haven't gapped wider like we expect, although market sentiment seems pretty soft and this could likely get worse before it gets better if the risk outlook doesn't get better. And for the sectors that are specifically exposed to the trade war with China, have those underperformed sectors that are not exposed at this point? So there is a potential for earnings to suffer due to these tariffs and leading to underperformance of spreads. And this would hit sectors that export to China, most notably capital goods, machinery, autos, and agriculture. But these haven't noticeably underperformed to this point in the trade war. And based on analysis of recent corporate earnings downturns, this is something that we expect should only come into play if this trade war drags on for several quarters. Thanks, Dan. Greg, I'd like to get you involved at this point. What are some of the countries' currencies that are most likely to suffer collateral damage from the U.S.-China trade war? 
Well, there are many. Similar to uh, what Dan Belton just mentioned about sectors, countries that are export dependent on on China for growth are likely to uh, see the biggest impact. So we're talking about uh, Aussie, Kiwi, Korean won, and then the uh, ASEAN currencies countries. Are there innocent bystanders, so to speak? So innocent is a loaded word, Margaret. If you side with China in this trade war, the U.S. is not going to consider you innocent. And vice versa, if you side with the U.S., China will not consider you innocent. And that has left a lot of countries trapped in between. Now, I would highlight uh, a couple of countries that are in a kind of a, a tough spot where they're export dependent on China, but they're financially dependent on, on U.S. markets. So that's Brazil and Chile. And yeah, just sort of trapped in the middle, uh, absorbing the crossfire. Greg, what about Australia and Canada? So Australia and Canada have really been put in the squeeze by the U.S. As participants in the Five Eyes surveillance teamwork, the U.S. has pressured them quite severely not to uh, accept Huawei uh, equipment into 5G upgrades. And along with those two countries, uh, New Zealand and the U.K. as well. Canada is even more in the middle of it because they have held uh, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei, uh, and are holding her for extradition to the United States, which has definitely earned Canada the uh, ire of China. Can you tell us a little bit about what currencies are most vulnerable to China restricting the export of rare earth metals to the U.S.? Well, that, that is a great question, Margaret. You sort of presume that base metals that need to be mixed with rare earths in order to create stuff that the price of those base metals would uh, would drop if the stuff just cannot be created. So we're talking about currencies like Australian dollar, South African rand, Chilean peso that from the base metal side of it would be negatively impacted. However, some of these same countries are places where you'd be most easily be able to mine rare earths and quickly over the next year or two. So they may see uh, inflows of investment that counteracts the uh, base metals effect. So let's get a little more specific. What do you think all of this means for U.S. dollar CAD? So I I would tell you, I think that there is probably about a 2% discount priced into CAD or a a premium into dollar CAD. So if this trade war wasn't here, you know, I I think we would be somewhere around 132 or 133, and instead we're a, a little above 135. Quick resolution of the trade war, and particularly... If the U.S. was to drop the charges uh, against Meng Wanzhou, then probably Dollar Canada would, would drop that 2%, say, uh, in a heartbeat. But otherwise, uh, we're likely to see Dollar Canada just continue to trade a bit off of all the other fundamentals. Well, speaking of Canada, Ben Wright says, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. Governor Polaz has discussed the trade war scenario in the past and noted that due to the potential inflationary impact, he might be inclined to not cut interest rates at all. What do you think of this? Is this feasible? Uh, I think that's a that's a very good question. Governor Polaz is uh, he states things theoretically, but in reality, uh, the, the facts on the ground dictate that uh, he may have no choice but to cut 
If you look at the macro backdrop in Canada right now, the economy's had a, a weak fourth quarter. Uh, the first quarter looks like it will be soft as well. And the recovery from that, it will be modest, according to the Bank of Canada in Q2. And it's going to take some time to recover the ground that was lost. And then if you were to add on a worsening trade war scenario, which is already a risk that the bank is very much aware of, uh, close to the top of their list for concerns right now. So if you were to add in a worsening trade war scenario, it's very difficult to see the bank refraining from, from moving rates lower. You'd have to see a significant increase in inflation. What we might end up seeing is the Bank of Canada perhaps lagging the Fed a little bit. If the Fed were to move, maybe you get the Canadian dollar strengthening a little bit more than the Bank of Canada would like, and then that would perhaps prompt the bank to move at the end of the day. But I think it's very difficult for the bank to be standing pat if you have other central banks easing. And really, the facts on the ground, the likely weakness in the economy on the back of a heightened trade war would at least at some point force the bank's hand into cutting rates. Thanks, Ben. Now I'd like to turn to Stephen Gallo, who heads BMO's European foreign exchange strategy. Stephen, given the U.S.-China trade war, there's been a lot of talk in the media lately regarding China's holdings of U.S. treasuries and speculation that China may be forced to engage in large-scale sales of U.S. dollar assets. In fact, we can recall quite vividly that China was a significant net seller of U.S. treasuries during the 2015-2016 episode which was the last major devaluation cycle for the RMB prior to 2018-2019. Do you think heavy sales of U.S. dollar assets by China are likely to occur? And what comparisons would you draw between the current episode of RMB weakness and what occurred back then? Sure. Well, thanks, Margaret. Firstly, there are some similarities between 2015-2016, that episode of RMB weakness, and the current one. But there also are some stark differences as well. And I want to focus mainly on the differences in order to answer your question. So to begin with, in 2015, you did not have the geopolitical wildcard in play. Uh, that is to say, 2015 was pre-Trump and before the US-China trade war. But the media has chosen to focus on, more recently, the potential geopolitical motivation China might have to engage in aggressive sales of dollar-based assets as a means of driving up US yields and driving down the value of the dollar. I can give you a response to the geopolitical angle in due course, but for now it's important to point out that there was no such media speculation whatsoever back in 2015, 2016, and China's sales of treasuries back then were purely a means of stabilizing the RMB quickly, while providing some dollar liquidity to domestic financial institutions because China's financial system is dollarized to a degree. So this is a good segue, I think, into the next stark difference between 2015 and now. And that is the fact that the timing and immediate pace of the 2015 RMB devaluation was by and large a policy error, which occurred in a very sloppy and haphazard manner. This time around, the RMB weakness we have experienced, which we expect to see more of, has been a much more controlled and heavily orchestrated move. What that does is lead us to believe that because of the control that Chinese policymakers have over the balance of payments and the currency, Aggressive sales of FX reserves by PBOC probably won't be necessary. So, Stephen, you're saying that aggressive sales are unlikely. How do you characterize the decline in China reserves that has occurred over the past few months? So, after adjusting for evaluation effects and the changes in the trade balance, we can clearly see that PBOC has been bleeding some reserves. But Chinese policymakers haven't yet had the need to engage 
in heavy sales of reserve assets because they have a much better handle on the financial account and the RMB overall. So what we're asserting is that the gentle bleed China has experienced in its reserve account over the past few months or so has basically been in line with fundamentals and it hasn't been really anything extreme. So you're saying it's in line with the fundamentals. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by this is firstly that we have seen a general trend lower in China's current account surplus take hold in recent years, which by definition means that China simply won't be accumulating reserve assets at anywhere near the average pace observed immediately before or immediately after the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Additionally, with the weaker economic backdrop in China, as we're all aware of, you would expect to see some pickup in outbound capital flow, which is simply a natural economic response to slower growth. And as a consequence of that, we have also seen a targeted loosening of monetary policy by the central bank. So rate differentials have generally been moving in, a f- in, f- in more in favor of the US dollar over the past year, even as the Fed has halted rate hikes. I would also add that under these circumstances, you would expect to see the currency in question weaken. That is indeed what we've been observing with the RMB. Though, as I mentioned, this has been in a much more orderly fashion than what occurred in 2015, 2016. So what we've been arguing and what we will continue to argue from this point forward is that the general economic backdrop and China's relatively elevated domestic debt burden will continue to warrant a relatively weak RMB so that China can continue to suck in capital flow from abroad. Of course, the point of this flow would be to offset the impact of the smaller current account surplus and possibly even slow the drain on reserves. So China has a strategic motive here for stabilizing the currency. So, Stephen, I'd like to zero in on something that you've mentioned at least once, and that's that Chinese policymakers are exerting greater control over the RMB and the balance of payments. Can you elaborate a bit on this, please? Absolutely. So after the 2015-2016 devaluation episode, it looked as if policymakers started to exert more control and more oversight on various forms of outbound flow. So, for instance, the cap on how much foreign currency an account holder can withdraw in a single transaction has been lowered. It was lowered recently, but it was lowered after 2015-2016. We've also seen lower caps on foreign investment quotas. They went into effect during and after the 2015-16 devaluation. There's been some loosening of these capital controls since 2015-2016, but by and large, things are much more under control than they were during that devaluation episode. Where we have seen a particularly big change is on the foreign direct investment side. We've looked at the numbers and on a cursory basis, we can see that total outbound FDI flow from China in Q1 of this year was just 152 billion yuan, which was much lower than the late 2015 peak of 430 billion yuan. But I think to simplify things, what I would say is what regulators have effectively done is they removed or at least substantially reduced the risk that a significant pickup in indiscriminate outbound flow yields further demand for foreign exchange, which in turn fuels a vicious spiral of RMB weakness. We would assert that the risks of that situation occurring are much lower today than they were of just a few years ago. And Stephen, where, where do you see this in the data? Well, one of the things we've looked at and we've zeroed in on and we think it's very important is that there's been a divergence between the pace of China's FX reserve outflows and the decline in RMB interest rates. So what we're saying is all things being equal, the current relatively low level of RMB rates implies a much faster pace of RMB outflows. 
we're just not seeing those those outflows occur at, at that type of a pace. And so we're inclined to think that this is at least some evidence that the capital controls have been successful in stabilizing the RMB and also allowing PBOC to engineer an orderly decline in the currency. Now, of course, just to hedge ourselves, we would never fully rule out a more disorderly decline in the currency as every currency management policy carries risks. All we're saying is that the risks of such a decline occurring, a disorderly decline that is occurring today are much lower than they were a few years ago. And so we're predicting a gentle decline in the offshore RMB, that is CNH, to 703 versus the US dollar over the next three months. All right. So, you know, bottom line me here, Stephen, do you think China will engage in large scale treasury sales? No, not unless an accidentally large or rapid decline in the RMB were to occur first. Uh, there's also been talk of dollar shortage theory. That is that's something that's been making news or making headlines. We're not ruling out a dollar shortage. We don't see any acute signs of it at the moment. If it were to become an acute phenomenon, we certainly wouldn't rule out more aggressive sales of reserve assets, including potentially U.S. Treasuries, as a stabilization mechanism, but not unless an accidentally large or rapid decline in the RMB were to occur. But what I want to do also is I want to take you back to a couple of points I made earlier, namely that China is seeking more inbound investment flow from foreign investors and also this notion of dollar dependence. The gist that I want to leave with you is that Chinese policymakers are very image conscious and aggressive sales of U.S. treasuries. All that would really do is to serve as another reminder that China is still very dependent on the U.S. dollar. So our angle is simply that much of China's energy over the coming months and years will be devoted to limiting the problems associated with dollar dependency and in some cases finding ways around it altogether. And one way it can do this is by continuing to attract inbound flows from foreign investors. So what are your thoughts on the RMB's global status relative to the status of other major currencies like the U.S. dollar? Right. So this is a very important uh, question, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very important point that, point that I'll make as a follow-up to that question. Actually, the control that China has over its currency, although one of the benefits is a, is a stable currency, the cost is that full liberalization of the currency and the capital account are probably even less likely today than they were just a few years ago. Put differently, what we're saying is that China's currency management strategy is not without cost. And this is why we believe that the RMB share in global reserves is likely to increase over the coming years, but probably only at a very slow pace, all things being equal. Well, thank you, Stephen, for your insights today. Now that we've discussed our base case, specifically that China will not engage in large-scale U.S. dollar asset sales, we'd like to explore what would happen if they actually did. So, Ian, I'd like to begin with you. What impact would a large selling program have on the U.S. Treasury market? Well, it all depends on how it's carried out. One of the things that China is known for in the Treasury market is not being particularly open in terms of their transactions, what they're doing at any given point in time. And intuitively, that makes a lot of sense when you continue to purchase Treasuries. Selling Treasuries, on the other hand, has entirely different implications if you're trying to disrupt the U.S. economy. So they would need to be very vocal about selling Treasuries. They would need to say something to the effect of, I'm just throwing this out there because we don't know the exact sizes of what they own in what sector. Imagine a world in which China said, okay, we're going to sell $300 billion 
10-year notes over the course of the next four weeks. Well, Treasury yields would sell off 15 basis points and then rally 35. It's the rallying 35 basis points on a collective risk off that I think will be the more durable part of that trade. Because of what it means for the trade war to have devolved so far that China is willing to risk the value of their own FX reserves with retaliatory selling. Moreover, we don't know, as I mentioned, exactly the composition of China's portfolio. We know that there's going to be some allocation in bills, some allocation in coupons, presumably further in the curve, as is the normal buying behavior of global central banks. So such a move would probably be most detrimental in the front end of the curve, call it twos, threes, maybe even in the tips market, depending on how they choose to go about utilizing their holdings. So basically, you gave an example of the potential for large sales in 10-year, but that's not that wouldn't be the base case in the event that they did embark on large-scale sales. It would be five years and under, and it, it would obviously impact the yield curve over the near term. Yes, five years and in has always been the go-to assumption. We're adding in the bit of a nuance that it might also include tips, and higher real yields have different monetary policy implications than dislocations in twos and threes. Thank you, Ian. Let's turn to spreads. Dan Creeder, U.S. dollar swap spreads reached historical lows in 2015-2016 during the last round of U.S. asset sales by central banks. What is the outlook for swap spreads given the recent trade war escalation? Well, as you said, the last time we saw major selling of U.S. assets by emerging market central banks, we touched historical low levels in swap spreads, and we're actually not far off those lows today, a couple basis points off those lows. We had expected swap spreads to establish lows in March as we were factoring repo relief and other things to drive swap spreads wider over the next six months. What we were not factoring into in our view, and admittedly maybe should have been, given the trade war, was the potential for asset sales by China. But the future direction of swap spreads is actually rather binary. Either China will sell assets or they won't. If they do, we would see no reason to not expect a similar scenario to play out now as happened in 2015-16. And in fact, it would probably be even worse this time around. The main avenue for narrow swap spreads when when there is large asset sales, is the supply that hits the secondary market. And currently, the secondary market is not set up at all to handle that supply, evidenced by heavy treasury issuance and dealer inventories near all-time highs. So were China to actually sell assets, it would probably be a repeat of 2015, but even worse. In this case, we could see short-end dollar swap spreads go negative, which doesn't make much sense on its face. But we would expect spreads to reach negative five probably before they started to find some footing. And longer-term spreads, the target would be even lower than that. If China doesn't sell, we would return to our previous prediction that swap spreads will start to widen. And since, as Stephen talked about earlier, we don't expect China to sell, that would be our preferred play. However, we stopped short of making an outright get-long swap spreads recommendation because the risk-reward just doesn't seem to justify it. If China doesn't sell and we're correct, we'd expect swap spreads to maybe grind a little bit higher. It wouldn't be a large move, most likely. But if it turns out that China does sell assets and, and, and we were incorrect in our thought, then swap spreads would probably drop five to seven basis points very quickly. So we stopped short of, of actually recommending going long spreads. So, Dan, let's turn to SSAs. 
If China were to sell U.S. dollar assets, what are the implications for the SSA market? For SSA specifically, I, I mean, I think the implications are very similar to happened in 2015, 2016. We saw SSA spreads reach post-European debt crisis highs during the, the EM central bank sales episode of 2015-16, and I see no reason why it, would be di- why it would be any different this time around. I mean, looking at the spread markets in general, we see spreads across the board have narrowed uh, significantly, and the up-in-credit quality trade seems to make a lot of sense at this point. Unlike the swap spread outlook, which was you know rather uncertain, uh, our view on credit spreads is is not as uncertain. I think no matter what China does, whether they sell assets or not, credit spreads to treasuries at least are likely to get ahead wider. If China does sell assets, that implies a, a trade war escalation, Fed potentially cutting rates. We're talking about the end of the cycle here, and that would be an obvious credit spread widener. If China doesn't sell assets and it becomes apparent at some point that they are not going to, we'd expect a pretty meaningful bump higher in swap spreads at that point, which would drag credit spreads alongside. So I, I think the outlook for, for credit spreads to treasuries here is, is pretty bleak and perhaps not surprising with spreads near historically low levels. So an interesting way to maybe take advantage of both things is to is to look to the U.S. agency market, which outperformed SSAs and other spread products during the 2015-16 sales episode. And that's primarily just because Asian central banks don't own agencies and haven't since they entered conservatorship. You can look at distribution statistics on, on new issues for both SSAs and agencies, and we can see that Asian investors typically take down about a third of new SSA deals, while their their takedown of U.S. agency issues is like 2% uh, in 2018. They just don't own it. So moving up in credit quality, even all the way up to U.S. agencies where spreads are obviously very narrow, it makes sense right now, given the insulation from potential China asset sales, as well as the fact that they just appear attractive on a relative value perspective at the moment, given how tight all other asset classes have moved. All right. Thank you, Dan. At this time, I would like to thank our listeners and encourage you to share any questions with us. Thank you for listening to Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 5. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. 
It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. Vimo is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause Vimo or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. Vimo is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.